Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. So what is the difference between a chronic cheating and being an SA? I don't think we answered that one. And I think it's a really good question of how do you go? Is this person, because I know we've talked before with people that go, you know, I'm not a sex addict, but they've cheated 30 times, you know, so, and I'm just making up a number. So. Well, in some ways it's hard to see until you interview the person and find out their history, because when two people are cheating and having affairs, you know, you don't know until you know that this person had seven and they saw a hundred sex workers and they were looking at porn three times a day. You know, you really don't know until you interview them. But I can say how I think of these people, which is I, I think of someone who's cheating, um, you know, one at a time, um, maybe some time in between as immature. I wrote about that and in the, out of the doghouse, because out of the doghouse is a book for all men who've cheated to try to find a way to have empathy for their partners. And, um, you know, I, I, so the way I talked about it is, you know, when you become a mature human being and you're in a relationship, you just don't think of me when you go out in the world, you think about the both of you. And I think part of immaturity is being able to sort of like put that person out of your head or, you know, when I go to the store, Tammy, and I'm shopping for the holidays, I look for something for, let's say you, but I'm also thinking, what would my husband like? What would this person like? And I'm seeing things. And so it's not just me that I have in mind or the other person, it's my whole world. And I think for people who are really immature, they don't keep other people in situations in their head when they go out. They just haven't learned how to keep that person, I use the word, in mind. That person is not in mind. But, um, but sex addicts, you know, we're we're a different breed. Um, we don't have one affair. We have five. And then usually we're having one affair while we're getting into the next affair while we're also um, hitting on the person at work. And, you know, it it rarely, in my experience, and Tammy, please correct me, is just one affair with one person that I've been having for years or two or three affairs I had over whatever period of time. Our people are having multiple affairs in multiple situations. They're having sex with coworkers. They're having affairs with completely inappropriate people. Not that anyone is appropriate, but a client, a coworker, me too situations, the next door neighbor, having sex with someone in their house, in the bed where they're married. I mean, our folks go to extraordinary lengths to get what they want, not just because they want someone and they wanna hide it from their spouse, but because their whole life is surrounded by this kind of behavior. And there's a history. Almost all the men that we work with, they had, you know, as I say to many of you spouses, they had this problem before they ever met you. And it's so typical. Tammy knows I do these two-hour consultations. And I sit with folks for two hours and help them try to sort through their life and determine their next steps. And, you know, I so often hear this come up, which is, you know, oh, I only had an affair. Or it wasn't that big a deal or it wasn't that frequent or, you know, and there is absolutely a difference between the person who has done one or two things and the person who's done it repetitively. And I think, so anyway, there's much, much more I could say, but tell me what, you wanna throw some stuff out there and I'll come in well, behind you? I, I, yeah, I was thinking when you were talking that it's easy, like even with the example you gave um, or the one I gave before of like, you know, X amount of affairs, it's easy for a sex addict in particular to compartmentalize and go, 
oh, I'm not that bad because I didn't, or, oh, I didn't have sex in my house. You know, I only did it in Vegas or what, you know, so when you're looking for justification for your behavior that has been incredibly hurtful to someone you care about or is problematic in your workplace, like you mentioned, you know, having sex with a client or coworker or something in a hashtag me too, you know, uh, I just saw on the news that Harvey Weinstein got, another court you know although he's in prison he's going to more and i was like that's the reality you know like and people are able to compartmentalize and go oh that those bad things won't happen to me you know mine was whatever and so i think it's really important you know at some point you know if it's just cheating stop you know if you can't stop get help you know and that's i think what is really meaningful about the work that you know our team is doing. I think you mentioned the expert consultations, you know, and I think having clarity, uh, it's validating for partners. I hear that consistently that partners, you know, feel heard um, and are validated because if they've been gaslight, uh, gaslit, if they've been, um, you know, told, oh, it's just not that big of a deal, or I only did it once, you or know, it's your uh, fault. Oh, that true, true, true. Yeah, yeah. To have uh, the ability to help identify what the real, you know, the real truth is, you know, on on some level, and for there to be hope. I mean, I hear often from the couples. It's often couples. It's, it can be individuals, but from the couples that they have hope that you know one partner can get the help that they need, and the other partner can get the support that they need, and that there is a path forward. Not always, you know, some of them it's, you know, I absolutely am digging my heels in, but to me, this is, you know, if it's chronic cheating, I mean, it feels like splitting hairs. If it's chronic cheating, you know, one label or another, it still is problematic for the relationship, but it's still hurtful. There's still a betrayed partner. All of those things are, are devastating to your primary connection that, you know, that you had intended when, when you connected with that other person. I, I, I want to add to that. It's in our world. It's not at all unusual for a guy to say, well, I met my current spouse by having an affair. Well, what ended your last relationship? I was having an affair. And recently, what ended your first marriage? Or now on their third, I was having an affair. And so when you see those repetitive patterns, even if they're not acting out with tons of people, it's like, why do you need to always constantly? And by the way, men are lily pad dumpers. Even the healthiest among us want to leave this relationship and jump onto the next one. I do understand that's kind of how we're built. But this is a repetitive pattern over and over. And it's not unusual for me to say to the person who's been having sex, you know, they'll say, oh, this this affair partner, they're really the one. They're really the one I need to be with. I just finally figured out I married the wrong person, whatever. And of course, I say to you, this is an addict. Have you flirted with anyone else while you're in this affair? Well, yeah. I have. have you had sex with anyone else? Well, a couple of people. Have you paid for sex? Well, yeah, but I still love this person. And this is really the person. And what they don't see is their behavior is already continuing in the next relationship. Even though they say this is the person, when you start to see what they're doing in addition, I kind of say, well, if this is the person, why are you doing all of this other stuff? So I do think that in a, in a very simple way that uh, that non-addicts are much more relational. They're actually deeply connected, even if they're in a fair. And our folks feel connected, but it's much more of an intensity, sneaky, hiding. They get a lot out of the intensity of all of that. Rather than if you're having an affair, you don't feel good about that. You want to hide it. You don't want people to, you know, all that. Anyway, it is not splitting hairs when we are going through it in detail. And that's one of the reasons that 
I think I do good work. I think the treatment center does good work because assessment is everything. You know, I have to assess. I was just talking to, we're going to have a new psychiatrist coming on. I'm really excited about lots and lots of experience like the guy. And, you know, we talk about, we talk about how many folks come in also for co-occurring, by the way, someone comes in and it's just like, well, I just have an alcohol problem. And then I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and then I'm doing this. Many of our clients come in with emotional alcohol, alcohol problems and other related problems. So anyway, it is not easy to pick apart. Um, and it's a lot of one of our best skills, I think, is assessment. And sometimes I honestly have someone for a week and a half and all I'm doing is figuring out what the heck is wrong with them because no one has said, no one has identified, they've never had a good therapist. Tammy and I have had so many people come in, they're incredibly depressed. They haven't been functioning well. They, And you know how they deal with the addiction when there are other mental health issues going on, which no one has ever identified. And if they don't deal with that, you know, it's kind of a, like this. So I think that um, you may not know in the moment and the behaviors may look the same in the moment, but when when we or some professional assesses for the larger picture, you can really tell the difference. But to you, it's well having an affair and they're having for what's the difference? To the professional, it becomes very clear once we're involved that this is different than that. Um, and that's what you need us for, because you may not know, but we can help you find but out. You've talked before about, and we don't have to pick this all apart, but you're someone who's having an affair with friends or colleagues or whatever that is very different than somebody who's you know doing it in a more distant way or bringing it into the home so so understanding that and even um you know i've talked with you and dr david too about you know the type of chemical if you're using substances what substances being utilized is very telling you know to a trained professional if they're using you know food or gaming or gambling in conjunction with a sexual all of those things you know, it represents something on, you know, about that client. It isn't just, you know, it isn't just put a client in the same program and do the exact same thing with every single person and it's all going to be fine. So um, I agree with you that having a professional team that can really understand and unpack things. We've had guys that have been to lots of other places, you know, and, and those things were not identified and addressed. And unfortunately for them and for their betrayed partner that, you know, it was unsuccessful, but, you know, when they come to us, we can help them in a different way. So. And I will say something about that. I was just talking to this new psychiatrist who I really like about this, which is, you know, people come in and it's amazing what comes out during the course of treatment. You have no idea how much more there is. And recently I was seeing a guy who came in and he was sexually acting out and he couldn't stop. And then we realized he was depressed. And then we realized he was drinking. And so he'd get depressed, he'd drink and he'd go out to have sex with strangers you can't just deal, we couldn't just deal with the mental health issue. We couldn't just deal with the addiction issue. We couldn't just deal with the substance issue. It, and that's, I think, what we're particularly good at is putting all those pieces together. And what I was saying was, is that we have people coming back from fancy treatment centers and I read their report, you know, it comes back to me as a therapist and it says stuff like, well, they're workaholic and they're love addicted and they have a sex. And it's like, but are they depressed? Are they anxious? Do they have Asperger's? Because if you don't identify all that stuff, they will go round and round in circles hating themselves because they can't get where they need to. So multiple issues, I don't know how we got affairs, but multiple issues are often what we're seeing that unfortunately get don't get fully identified. And this all goes back to, is the person coming in who has an affair? Is the person coming in who's a, an addict? And that's what the work is for, is to figure that out. 
So you just mentioned love addicts. So the next question is, how can I tell if my essay partner is also a love addict? These are and from the previous doing... one. So you aren't going to say, oh, okay. no, you're these are, new ones, I've yeah. got a handful of these. So it's how, how can I tell if my essay partner is also a love addict? Well, uh, so I think of, I, can, I don't know the answer to that specifically because I don't know the person and I don't know your situation, but I can tell you how I look at it is that sex addiction is kind of um, a lower level problem, almost a more in my world primitive problem, meaning you don't want to know the person or you just know the person and have sex with them. You're not really connected to them. You're not really interested. It's the body parts that you want. It's the person wanting you. It's the arousal. It's the chase and the hunt and you know getting that person to want. All of that stuff is sex addiction. And it's a lot of objectifying body parts. If I have sex, if this person desires me, then I'm okay. Then my needs are met or whatever it is for that person. But, um, but when love addiction comes along, what we call love addiction, it's more like graduate school for sex addicts, meaning that now I objectify the person, not just their body parts. So as a sex addict, I want them to fill the emptiness inside of me by desiring me sexually. In love addiction, which is a step up, is I want someone who will love me and care about me because we all need to be loved, but I don't really care who they are. They're also an object to me. So in love addiction, I'm looking for the feeling that I get from someone who's interested in me. And when I'm not alone, I see that as love. And so I go, I go to that situation over and over and over again, because what happens is I get involved, fall in love with someone that isn't really good for me or isn't the right person or isn't really someone I'm interested in. But I fall in love with the feeling of falling in love and all that emotional intensity. And then we're, when it goes south, because I usually didn't pick the right person. I picked someone who would make me feel a certain way. But healthy people say, what do I like about them? Not how do they leave me feeling? And, or, and the feelings that I have for them are built on what I learned about them. That's not a love addict. Love addict is just please love me. Please take care of me. As long as you're attending to me, I don't need to know a lot about you. And then when they do find out a lot of the other person, half the time, they're not someone they want. Or they say, I don't know why I picked this person. Or, well, you pick them because of how they leave you feeling. And a lot of love addicts will have a, a you know a month, two month, three month relationship, and then they're out and they're on to the next person. And they'll say, well, I wasn't attracted to them anymore. Or it didn't really get it. You know, well, what they really mean is it got scary. It got real. I didn't really know them that well. And so I was out. Um, yeah. Thoughts, Tammy? Uh, the graduate no, I school appreciate of that. Yeah. I, I, and I, you've shared that before and I, you know, I agree. And, you know, I've had, interestingly, I've had betrayed partners call uh, and they perceive that they're a love addict. And, and I'm like going, because you care about this person, you know, so, so I'm, it's helping them unpack that. No, you care about a per person who's got some brokenness, but that doesn't mean you're you're a love addict and so, so so it's really helpful to have you you know talk about you know how how the objectification of the person and what you're doing for me is really all i care about and seduction i think is a really big piece of what you see in the, mm. in the love addicts um how can i be what you want me to be in order to charm you and you know if i'm just having sex with sex workers and looking at porn my skill set of being particularly charming engaging aren't particularly important but love addicts are very good at i'm vulnerable and please come rescue me or i'm strong and i'll take care of you whatever you need me to be in order to get you hooked that's what i'm going to be 
Um, and then, of course, they don't know us either. So anyway, we got lots of questions coming up. Tammy, yes, what's next? Well, we've got two more, I think, um, from before. So this one is, as a betrayed partner, I struggle with waiting for the next shoe to drop. I feel he is finally understanding what it takes to begin a healthy recovery, and he is doing the work. How do I begin to open up and be welcoming to his recovery journey? I want to be able to receive what he has to say without the resentment. I love my SA husband, but I have detached so much. I feel like I'm speaking. Uh, I, I feel fake in speaking with him. I don't feel genuine. I'm so scared to get hurt again. This is a very common situation for betrayed partners. Do you want to start a ta uh, challenge, start responding before I do? That would be helpful. Um, yeah. I, so one of the things I think is in your integrity, um, like wh why do you feel like you have to show up any other way than who you are? You know, he has hurt you. He has a long ways to go. You said as a husband. So he has a long ways to go to show you that he's trustworthy just because he starts to look like he's doing the things right, which is great. It really is about action and not lip service, but that's a journey. And, you know, it's, fair for you to be, you know, 12, 18 months behind his journey. So if mm -hmm. he's finally now starting to, you know, show up differently, great. And let him continue to build on that trust. I would encourage you as a betrayed partner on the seeking integrity site in January, we have a betrayed partner work group starting again, and it's about healthy boundaries, communication. I mean, it really is those foundational Anger. pieces of, yeah. How do you, how do you, deal with that um uh crystal dr crystal hollenbeck did a webinar and she'd done a podcast with you dr rob about anger you know for betrayed partners mm -hmm. and that's posted on the sex and relationship healing.com site it was really a good one but it talks about uh you know she talked about that so it's fair for you to have anger and you know this person has hurt you for a longer period of time and then all of a sudden now he's starting to do things right well that isn't yay that's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to hold on. I'm going to wait, wait and see. Um, he can get support from his group. Oh, I was thinking if he hasn't already done it, the sex addiction 101 work group would be a fantastic start. If he's already done that one, then out of the doghouse, Dr. Rob mentioned that book, but there's a work group too on that. Those are six week psychoeducation courses. They are not treatment. They are not therapy. Many therapists recommend them for their clients to help support the work that they are doing. They see them doing better faster with those live facilitated work groups. So check those out. And you can always email me, Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com if you've got questions. So, Hey, Tammy, did that say how long that this had been going on or how long? Because No, but this feels early because it says, I, I feel he is finally understanding what it begins, to, what it takes to begin a healthy relationship. So, so for whatever period of time, he's finally turning the corner and starting to do the work. So I feel so like when the clock Tammy, is like at, at maybe one o'clock. Well, what I was saying, and that sort of feeds right into what Tammy was saying, is that, you know, it's a lot easier to feel good about where they are when they've been working on this for a year. Um, you know, when you've seen a steady, stable, stable exper uh, uh, experience of them doing it, you know, at three months or six months, or I wouldn't expect, you know, it's great that someone got into recovery. It's great that they're working on it. It's great that you have hope for the relationship, but your anger, your disappointment, your hurt, 
that can go on for a long time. And that depends on whether he's doing the work. If you don't see him at meetings, if you don't see him getting a sponsor, if you don't see him in therapy, if you don't see him really actively working on it. And by the way, spouses, when you nag us to go to this and go to that, you can expect we're not doing well. Because our recovery, if we're really in it, I say, I'm going off to my meeting, have a good night, or here on Thursday, I'm going to do this. You should never have to say, you know, well, aren't you going to those meetings anymore? Or whatever. That's my job. And if you find yourself nagging your spouse, and I don't mean nagging in a negative way, I mean questioning, what are you doing? Um, and are you doing this? And are you doing that? And you're running their recovery. That's a problem. Um, and I think that's also part of what would make me uncomfortable is, you know, I appreciate hearing what you're doing, but I don't want to direct it. And I don't want to be worried about it. And I don't want to ask you about it. And But as Tammy said, it can take a year or longer for a spouse to feel that they can begin to trust again. And of course, us addicts were like, well, it's been 90 days and I'm doing all the stuff I should be doing. So how, why haven't you forgiven me? Um, or I've been going to meetings for 90 days and I've been in therapy and aren't I great? Don't you want to just cheer for me? And it's like, no, you ruined my life and I hate you. And I'm not going to cheer for you for all this hard work. But your therapist can cheer for you. The guys in the other meetings can cheer for you. It's just that I'm the one you hurt. And my job is to lick my wounds and come to peace with it, not to make you feel good for the things you should be doing in the first place. So forgive yourself. Don't. And here's one more thing for your spouses. Don't ever feel that us acting out is a result of your anger, your disappointment, your fear. I've had so many spouses say, well, I'm afraid to get too angry because maybe they'll go act out again. Or what if I completely cut them off from sex? Aren't they going to need it and go to other people? And as I said a million times, you know, when someone's upset or they're not getting sex or they're having an unhappy marriage, there is a whole lot of things they can do other than go have sex with strangers and affairs. You know, if I am fighting in my relationship and I'm not doing well, I can see a therapist. I can find a golf game with friends to spend more time and feel better about myself. I can get a divorce. But to sit around and say, well, if my spouse wasn't this and if they weren't that and they were just this and if they were just cheering for me more, then I wouldn't do these things is is much easier for us because it's easier for us to point at something outside of ourselves and say, that's why I'm this way. That's it's work. It's, it's my spouse. It's travel, whatever it is. And of course, it's always a choice. No matter how miserable my life might be, my, it is always my choice to go drink, to go use, and to go sex or gamble or whatever it is. Because there are so many other choices that anyone could make. When I justify it by saying it's your fault, um, that means I'm not really taking any responsibility for what's really going on. So I want to go back to what you talked about with nagging. Um, I, I hear, no, it, it, it's when a, a partner does not feel safe because the actions are not transparent of like, yeah, this person is on the recovery journey. I see them taking the actions that they need. I start to see the changes. I, I hear regularly, because I talk to lots of people, I don't have any desire to do that anymore. And I'm like, huge red flag. You may not have a desire right now, but you will, or you'll switch to something else because this doesn't magically go away. This is a chronic condition. This is lifelong and having a plan for what we're going to do when we are triggered. You may feel like you're in the doghouse right now and okay, I've been, a, you know, I, I'm going to be really good and I'm not going to do that right now. And the whole desire has been removed, but something will happen. That's called life. And so um, when, when an addict says that, when a partner is like, you know, oh, he's really doing good. And I'm, and I think that's all behind him huge red flag. I'm like, that's when I would be you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop because that, that is an unrealistic 
expectation for any of us to magically be, oh, the desire is gone and therefore, I mean, well, enough said. Okay, we have well, one I more question. Well, I want to actually say something about that. Because okay, I, I just was working with a gentleman who said, you know, I, I really don't have any desire to do any of that. It's just completely gone. And how long have you been feeling that? Well, ever since I got caught. And yeah, as soon as you're in trouble, whether you have a DUI, you're not going to want to drink for a while, whether you, you know, gamble your kid's college fund and get caught, you're not going to. Crises um, and consequences do leave us not wanting to do whatever it is for a period of time because we're scared and we're worried and we're upset. And the last thing we want to do is get anywhere near that thing that got us in trouble. However, it will be back. And that's what I say to the men I work with is when you are, when those feelings have gone away, that's when you need to do all the hard work because they will be back. And as we say, uh, I've heard this so many times, while I'm working on my recovery, the addict inside of me is doing push-ups in the corner, <laughs> meaning that part of me is just ready to come back and it will come back. And you better be prepared for what you need to do when it does. Um, yeah. So. Well, or another form of escape, you know, like I was talking to somebody recently who said, well, I haven't acted out with people, but like there it's chronic porn and masturbation. So it's highly problematic. The partner is devastated, you know? And so, so yes, it's not the same, but you're still, you know, it could be chemicals. It could be gaming. It could be whatever, you know, you're using in an unhealthy way to escape and numb out. The, the problem for addicts is we don't have the you know, the skills to do life on life's terms. And so we find maladaptive coping mechanisms. And if, the, if we aren't using this one, we're going to find something else that numbs us out, helps us escape so that we don't have to deal with reality. So, okay, one more. Uh, hi, I'm a PA husband and my betrayed spouse has been consistent the whole time that my betrayal is too much and she is done. I'm still holding on to hope that we can work it out. How do I stay motivated in my recovery when my spouse is adamant that they are done? And at what point it is, is it unhealthy for my recovery and my betrayed spouse's recovery from trauma for me to continue to hold on to the relationship? Am I re-traumatizing my sp spouse by trying to hold on and work it out? So it feels like a couple questions. The first one is, yeah. you know, how do I stay motivated in my recovery when my spouse is adamant that they're done? Okay, let's answer that one. Yes. So if your motivation for your recovery is what someone else does or doesn't do, it's not going to help over time. Um, we use the term higher power, which means something or someone greater than myself that um, gives me hope and is a place I can turn for healing, whatever that means for you. Um, but something that your higher power cannot be is your wife or your husband. We have, you know, at Seeking Integrity, every guy comes in and he's, uh, why are you here? Well, my wife this, well, my husband that, you know, they're there because they're in trouble. Um, but um, what was I going to say about that? What else, Tammy? What do you want to add to that? Oh, there's multiple the, questions, right? So yeah, yeah, yes. What, well, the, to that piece, though, it, right. to me, it's if, if I don't take care of me now, say this relationship doesn't work out. You're right. still going to be the same person that's problematic and is going to go wreak havoc on another relationship. You know, the, the only person I can change is me, you know, and so I stand no chance of dealing with life on any kind of good terms if I don't do my recovery. So that would be why to stay motivated, you know, the recovery. Because you don't want to live like this anymore. Right. You know, and, you, you know, like guys do come into our program and they're looking to, I need to get 
the spouse off my back and I need to show them, you know, it's kind of like checking off the boxes, but the, the people that are really going to make it work are the ones that go, I get it. I need to do this for myself, you know, and then all of the other things, you know, fall into place, not magically, but, you know, I stand a chance at doing life. Well, you know, we're seeking integrity. I love that about our program that we personally strive for integrity and we want to help, you know, clients have that as well. That's what living well is living in integrity. So that's, And and I want to say one more, one more Mm -hmm. thing about that, which is, you know, we run a treatment program and most people come in, in, in trouble and, you know, let's say they're, uh, let me say this in the right way. So uh, I have, let's say I have one, once each day I have a call with my spouse. And so I had a really nice call with my spouse this morning before I started treatment, the treatment day. And I come into group and I'm like, oh, today's great. I'm having a really good day. I had a really good talk with my spouse. I'm really fully encouraged about the work I'm doing. And then the next day in the morning, they have a terrible talk with their spouse because you guys go up and down like a roller coaster. And all of a sudden we have a terrible call. And then then they come in like, what's the point? Nothing's working out. And, and it's all going well. It's just they are riding up and down on the back of their relationship and their hopes for change. And you spouses know you're on a roller coaster. And one day you hate us and one day you love us and, you know, ambivalent love. So for us to ride our recovery and to to put the the, the you know, the cart on the horse of, you know, how are you feeling today? Do you love me? Do you not me? Are you going to stay with me? Are you not? that isn't it, you know, because that situation may change many times. But I'm seeking something unchanging in myself, which is stability and self-love and not doing things that I hate myself for. So what's the next so the part next of piece that? of it is um, how do I oh no, um, is it unhealthy for my recovery and my betrayed partner's recovery to continue to hold on to the relationship and and the final piece of it, which is still part of that is am I re-traumatizing my spouse by trying to hold on and work it out? Well, I don't think we have the whole picture there because I don't really know what the spouse wants or doesn't want from what I hear. The spouse is adamant that they are done. Oh, well, then I think you have to respect that. You know, and I I don't think it's unhealthy to say I love you and I'm really hoping that we work it out. And, you know, could we give it a couple of months to see how it goes? You know, give it three months and then we'll go to couples therapy or whatever. But I got to tell you, when someone's done, they're done. And there ain't nothing in the world that you can change their minds. You know, you may get them for a few moments to feel, oh, ah, uh, yes. But eventually they're going to go back to the decision they've made. When someone makes, I mean, that's not a little decision. That's a big decision. And I say this often, I'll say it every time I do this. The opposite of love is not hate. You know, when your spouse comes in and like, I can't stand you and you've ruined my life. And I don't know if I want to live with you. And that's actually passion. They're still in there with it. They're still hanging in there. They may, it may not be love, it may be hate, but they're both passionate, intense feelings directed toward you. But the opposite of love is indifference. You know, when I have a spouse say, well, you know, I'm not really sure I want it to go forward. And, you know, I'm kind of done. It's been too difficult. And I realize that they're not in anymore, that they are sitting back from there. And they're saying, I've seen the anger, I've seen the love. And, you know, I'm kind of done with both. And that's the person I think who's really moving beyond the relationship because the passion, the intensity, the hope, the fear, it's kind of gone. And they're just waiting for to keep moving on. So um, it is not unfair for you to say to your spouse, I wish we could work it out. Can we do this kind of therapy? Can we do that kind of therapy? Could we put things on hold? But yeah, it is unhealthy for you to say to your spouse, you know, uh, to beg them, to try to convince them, 
Um, they are where they are and they get to make their own decisions. And by the way, we, as sex addicts, we have manipulated our spouses enough. We need to leave them alone. And maybe what they're looking for is our respect for where they're coming from. And that might be the very thing that brings them back. Um, I don't know. But yes, it is unhealthy to try to convince. Don't pull out the pictures of your wedding and look when we were happy and don't get the kids to say how, I mean, just let them do what they need to do. Say what you need and say what you'd like to see happen. And then the rest is not up to you. It's up to them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.